0: Welcome back, book nerds, to another episode of the New Books Network, and I am your host, Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns, assistant professor of rhetoric at SUNY Geneseo in a uh, pseudo-gray kind of lovely New York at the moment. I am so excited today because we have on our show a book that actually is sort of um, not really in my wheelhouse, so very cool to read and actually, surprisingly, as often happens, turns out to have a lot in common with what I do. And that is beyond Broadway, "The Pleasure and Promise of Musical Theatre Across America," by Stacey Wolfe. And this was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. So book just came out. And this is really quaint isn't quite the right word for it, but it is a very intriguing what the author calls an empathetic ethnography looking at all different ways in which musical theater makes an appearance in cultural, and community enclaves across America. And it touches on some of these big names that we often associate with musical theater like Broadway, like Disney. But it really looks at how those take shape at a very local level. And everything from little kids trying out and trying on costumes to participate in a high school show or or a grade school show, all the way up to um, like outdoor theaters and community performances and even dinner theater, which was a chapter I really enjoyed because little known fact about me, I was quite the dinner theater aficionado as a child. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Wolf and to dive into this book, which I think everyone will find as not only very scholarly and insightful the way that all of the books on the, the network are, but also refreshingly optimistic and really a look at kind of the fact that community and creativity is alive in many parts of America, even though we kind of think of ourselves as being very immersed in like this capitalist malaise where everything is commodified and everything is corporate and individuated. This book really has a much more complex look at what's happening through this lens of the sorts of musical theater that often don't get talked about in big headlines. So with that, I will go ahead and bring on our guest. Stacey, are you there? I am. Wonderful. All right. Well, it's wonderful to have you on the show. As I've already said, I really enjoyed this book and I'm excited to dive into it. Do you want to tell the audience Anything about you that you'd like people to know, or maybe the origins of the book project or an overview of what you find most exciting about the book?
1: Sure. Well, first, thanks so much for having me on the show, Lee. It's really great to have an opportunity to talk about my book. Yeah. I'm happy teach to have you. Musical theater, thank you. I teach musical theater history and criticism at Princeton. I mostly teach classes that are Kind of English classes, but we look at musicals. So right now I'm teaching a class on gender and musical theater. And today in my class, we're going to be talking about the musical Rent and we're going to be talking about the color purple. We talk about race and gender and those performances in this American, distinctly American form. So in some ways, my book came about because I had students in my classes. I have students in my classes who come from all over the world. And most of my students have never been to Broadway, they've never seen a Broadway show, and yet they know the Broadway musical theater repertoire up and down and backwards. And for a while, I couldn't understand this. And then I thought about my own childhood, and I grew up in suburban Baltimore and also never went to Broadway until I was well into my teens, And yet I was a musical theater fanatic as a kid. I also went to dinner theater when I was little and I went to community theaters and I took drama classes and I was obsessed with Broadway. And yet I had never been to Broadway. So I think a combination of the past of my life and the present of my students initially got me wondering about why musicals persist. And that was the original motivation for this project. Why do people keep doing this art form that is so slow and so old fashioned and face to face and very primitive in a way. And that got me thinking about the different places where musicals happen across the country and took me on this journey. And the book is structured like a road trip where I go to all of these different places across America. I visit dinner theaters in Colorado. I visit a woman who oversees an after-school program that she's been doing since the 1970s in Northern California. I go to an outdoor theater in Austin, Texas. I visit the site of Disney shows at schools in Nashville and travel around to see, exactly as you said in your introduction, how and why people of all ages make musical theater, what it means to them, and how it shapes and inflects their local communities.
0: I hadn't, I had forgotten to mention, right. So the book is, it's very cool the way the book is structured. It's. Re- it really makes you feel like you are driving across the country on just this, I don't know how long, how long uh, the, the time span is like roughly, but it feels like for at least a couple of months that you're just seeing every possible musical theater performance you could see in all kinds of weird places. And then in the epilogue, we sort of wind up at when you're when you're done with the book and you're in Hawaii, but you can't sort of let go of the fact that you are a permanent musical theater tourist almost. That's kind of how you see life now. And it it really makes the book really a fun read.
1: Thank you. Yes, exactly that. Well, I'm glad you had the feeling that it took place over
0: months, because
1: in truth, as you well know from an academic book, it took place over years. I was yeah. for, for seven years and as mostly teaching full time while I was working on the book, all kinds of research happened in the summers and chapters got written as they could. And then I wove it all together and try to make it sound a little bit more coherent and organized than it actually was as as all academic books happen. But I think what you're saying about what, hap- what I write about in the end of the book, and I still feel that now, although in this time of social distancing and mostly being in my house, I'm not experiencing it so much, but this idea that if we look around our communities, amateur and local musical theater is happening everywhere. And one of the things that I write about at the end of the book is that my town looked different to me after this project. I noticed high school shows that I hadn't ever noticed before. I noticed what an incredibly vibrant community theater scene there is around me. I noticed that there were after-school programs happening. I noticed performances happening in local parks that I hadn't seen before. And it absolutely transformed me. And I hope that readers of the book will also not only appreciate what they already participate in, but maybe expand and appreciate and participate in other kinds of musicals in their towns. And as they travel, once I started working on this book, any place I traveled to see friends or family on vacation or for a conference or anything, I absolutely had to see whatever was happening in the place where I was. So I've seen a lot of productions of The Little Mermaid all over the country.
0: Yes. I I have seen like a shocking number of performances of Bye Bye Birdie for some reason. Well, Bye Bye Birdie,
1: I'm actually not that surprised because if you are at all interested huh. in theater, Bye Bye Birdie continues to be one of the most produced musicals in high schools. Until a couple years ago, Bye Bye Birdie was in the top 4 year after year. And now, really? Huh. Yeah, Bye Bye Birdie and Grease have been surprisingly and perhaps nauseatingly from a feminist perspective yeah continue continually top top players in the high school scene really I would say over the past 15 years or so the Disney shows have just taken over everything including high school productions and one of the most interesting high school productions that is a big seller is the Adams Family which like a number of musicals that are successful in amateur and local venues flopped on Broadway and it got terrible reviews. It didn't play for very long. And yet as soon as it was released for amateur licensing in 2014, it immediately jumped to be the number one show in high schools and stayed there for the first three years of its release. And then now I think it's maybe number two or number three, but there are certain kinds of musicals that just do well in high school settings in community theater settings and they need not do well on Broadway. So one of the things that that was one of the things that I found incredibly interesting in my research that Broadway feeds musical theater locally but also the local feeds Broadway and they're in mm-hmm. a very complex artistic and financial arrangement with one another in terms of who supports whom and when and how.
0: And you make this really interesting argument when you're talking about, oh, what's the name of the company, M- MTI, who, who does, the, yeah, who does the licensing for?
1: Right. Music Theater International, they, which are, they are the biggest licensors of musicals around the world. And there are a number of, a number of other companies, Rogers and Hammerstein Organization, Tam's Whitmark. Um, yeah. So what were you going to say about the licensors?
0: Well, just that you made this sort of interesting point because- you, you kind of make the point that you would expect that there's this very binary relation going into this without any research, you would expect this very binary relationship where at the top you see these very sort of like we think of like with the record labels, these very uh, monopolized, incredibly profit driven sort of cold companies that clutch onto all of these rights to these musicals. And then you expect to see this kind of like, like um, exploitation of, 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 of copyright and fees and licensing fees where they have to, where where at the bottom level. A lot of the high schools and community theaters are really sort of getting screwed over in this deal, but you, you paint a lovely picture of this very complex. I think you call it an ecosystem where exactly what you said, right? The, the small local theaters have all of these benefits to offer, including reviving plays that flopped, including keeping Broadway alive in the public imaginary. And then that feeds into the larger like on Broadway sort of, um, monolith, and then that feeds back down. And I just thought it was a really cool thing that I would not have expected had you not actually gone in and done the research. So that was a really excellent introduction to the whole layout of the book. I'm so glad that
1: you're talking about that, Lee. That was, for me, that was indeed the first step of my research. And I was completely shocked when I visited the offices of MTI, Music Theater International. I was actually shocked even before I went to the offices by how gracious and helpful The people who I spoke to there, um, Carol Edelson, who is pretty high up in the organization, and Freddie Gershon, who is the Emeritus uh, CEO, were so incredibly nice to me and welcoming and gracious, and were not at all interested in the profits or the money. Obviously, it's a big, huge company. All of these are big, huge companies, so they're absolutely implicated in global capitalism. There's no denying that, and in some ways... Their bottom line is about making money. But the services that they provide to local and amateur theater companies was astonishing to me. And again, I think from a more cynical point of view, you could say, well, in the end, these schools, whether they're paying $200 or $300 or $500, they're still paying money into the corporation. And indeed, they are paying money into the corporation that eventually eventually trickles down pennies on the dollar to the artists who created these shows in the first place. But they also have a massive operation that enables musical theater across the country. So one of the things I found absolutely fascinating that I knew nothing about until I visited their offices and got to know how the business works are digitized orchestrations. And again, like so many things that I talk about in the book, this cuts both ways. So what this means is that Either an orchestra will tape the cast album, all of the orchestrated music for the cast album without a voice. So all of the orchestrated music for a show or more typically now, it's all digitized music that provides the entire orchestrated score for a musical. So you basically press the file and it comes on as if it's a full, rich orchestra and you're surrounded by 40 instruments and 10 violins and it it sounds absolutely amazing. So on the one hand, this is, from a musician's point of view, an absolute travesty, and really, in some ways, from any musical theater person's point of view, a travesty, because where are the musicians? It's absolutely horrible. On the other hand, this kind of technology enables elementary schools and middle schools that might not even have anyone who plays the piano, much less an orchestra, a band. It allows them to do shows, and it allows kids to learn how to sing with these tracks. And one of the things that I found really interesting and moving is that when you rent, when schools or community theaters rent the tracks from MTI, they can specify which instruments they want to be a part of the track. So I visited one uh, high school, very small high school in rural Ohio. And this school, like many schools across the country, had a very strong marching band because they had a very strong football program. And so all of the artsy kids played instruments and they were incredible musicians. Well, this meant that they had brass, woodwinds, percussion, but they did not have a string program, really barely at all. So the teacher of the high school, uh, who I write about in the book, he set aside money at the very, very beginning of the process to be able to rent the string tracks from MTI. So he, they, it comes all digitized and computerized, and his, the assistant musical director for the show, would hit the track when it came time for the songs, and all of the kids, and I think there were 25 or 30 kids who played these other instruments, they would be playing live, and then they would be accompanied by the digitized track. So you hear all of this rich and amazing music, half played by the kids and half on the digitized, computerized score. And I think in some ways you could say, well, this is terrible. Where are the string instruments and how awful that it has to go this way. And in some ways, how challenging that the players have to stick with the track because the track goes on whether or not anyone likes it. And the players have to stay at the same tempo. The actors have to stay at the same tempo. There is no room for error. There are no room for mistakes. So on, on the one hand, it's very restraining and very limiting. But to my mind, it was incredibly enabling because it allowed this very small school to do a fantastic production of Into the Woods. There were 50 kids on stage and then all of these other kids playing their instruments and getting to play in a musical live. And it was really remarkable. So that was just one example of how the technology and what comes through the corporation is both compromised and also absolutely enabling.
0: And I think this gets to this concept you point out in the book. I wish I could remember which chapter specifically, but uh, serious leisure, I think you call it. And it's this paradox of what musical theater looks like, which is, yeah, it's leisure, but it's not consumer leisure the way that a lot of us think about it. So for example, if you think about what's happening right now with COVID and the just obsession over watching Netflix, like what would, how much different, would life look like if everyone were obsessed with collaborating to produce local virtual musicals? And I think that's one of the pushbacks on the the perspective that all of this just feeds the capitalist machine. It's sort of like, right, but there's a difference between $500 to feed the capitalist machine to passively consume a tech object versus $500 to pay to produce something that is this very kind of serious but also joyful creative undertaking and we'll probably talk a little bit more later about how creativity winds up looking in this book when you're doing something that you didn't create, which I, I found that part probably, it's probably my favorite theme in the book. But I also thought this serious leisure theme was a nice anchor to sort of explain the, the, the way that you, you can, yes, you have the cynicism, but also I think you have a lot of optimism there. So do you want to say more about this whole entire enterprise as like a serious leisure activity?
1: Yeah, for sure. I write about the idea of serious leisure and that's not my idea. It was um, created by, there's a whole field of leisure studies in the UK and uh, Robert Stebbins was the man who coined the phrase serious leisure. And it's the idea that people can do things for fun and for pleasure outside of their normal workday that are absolutely serious. And, um, in some ways it complicates the idea of what is work and what is pleasure and that in our global capitalist society there's a lot of blurriness between these lines which i think we're actually experiencing in a very intense way as work and play get all mixed up in um, the time of social distancing and staying at home so in the community theater chapter and um, for this chapter I focused on a community theater near where I live in New Jersey that's really a remarkable place because it's one theater that lives on the campus of the Mercer County Community College, but it's made up of 12 different theater companies. It's a big consortium. And some of those companies started in the 1950s and some are newer. And each of the companies works in its own way and some are a little more family oriented and some work by a board of directors and some have a couple of people who are in charge of it and each of these companies does two shows a year and the combination of those shows and what the college does in their own theater season and a number of children's shows this theater and until the outbreak of the coronavirus was busy 50 of 52 weekends a year which is unbelievable and they have very complicated schedule where a show plays for two weekends. So the first weekend it plays Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon. And then the second weekend after that Sunday afternoon show that cast and crew, and it includes the cast strikes the set as quickly as they can. And then the next show loads in and they do uh, tech rehearsals, like first couple days, days uh, preview on Thursday, and then they open on Friday. So it's this incredible coming and going of, People who have day jobs who are lawyers and doctors and students and work in shops and work in offices. And then in the evenings, they come and they make theater. And some of the people participate in one show, but a lot of the people participate in many shows and come back time after time. And some people change the roles that they play. Some are directors and choreographers and actors and designers. Others, are just lighting designers over and over again, or just stage managers over and over again. But these are people who have day jobs, have lives, and then have this other job that they do for pleasure that's very hard work and very serious and requires incredible dedication. And yet they are passionate about it and show up day after day, week after week, and year after year to keep the theater
0: thriving. And, and I, this is a nice transition because I wanted to talk about two things. And one was your reaction to the bowling alone thesis and also the thing about creativity. So this is a good transition into the bowling alone thesis. I'm going to read a quote to you, if you don't mind, just to kind of frame it for the audience. And then maybe you could react to it. Yes, definitely. Cool. So as you're talking about the musical theater, you, you sort of make an argument that we, we've already alluded to, which is, um, let's see, this is page 13. Musical theater is at root a collaborative communal enterprise. It brings people, theater makers, and spectators together in the same room at the same time, often across generations, to experience a story told through song and dance, once and only once, together. And then you go on to talk about this book, Bowling Alone, by Robert Putnam, that was all about the the disappearance of community bonds over the 20th century, right? Hence the term Bowling Alone. And then you go on to say that if that Putnam's book doesn't include any musical theater or really any of the arts. He's looking primarily like religion and sort of civic and sports, I think. Um, if he had looked at musical theater, he would have found a different picture in America where kids and adults come together on a regular basis to sing and dance well supported by their communities. And I love this because I have so many qualms with the Bowling Alone thesis and how often it gets kind of like put out there as this doomsday diagnosis about American belonging. So I thought this was a very cool argument. It really fit the book well. I really helped frame it in a very awesome way for me to read the rest of the piece. And so I thought maybe you want to talk a little bit about that before we move on to maybe some of the case studies. Yeah, well,
1: I was, of course, I, I had to read that. I, I think I actually read that book well before I started working on this project or in the middle of it. And like so many really important and interesting sociological studies, this book did not pay attention to theater as many don't. Many So much writing about community doesn't attend to theater and the importance of theater. And one of my interests in writing the book was how theater falls through the cracks of so many studies like this. But when I read the book, I knew immediately that this is not at all what goes on in communities where people are participating in theaters and people show up, people are there and community theater, especially I would say because community theater is something that exists outside of schools. They are independent institutions are places where people come together and not only come together, but people of all ages. So many families participate in community musical theater and audiences are of all ages When I saw so many rehearsals at the Kelsey Theater, which is the place that I write about, you would see a show and there would be a six year old and a 60 year old on stage together working on a show. And where in our culture do you see people of different ages and different generations coming together to work on something? And I felt like this is a place that we should look towards as a model for how people can come together. And I think art making, creativity, music. Dance, all of these pleasurable activities that happen in the same place at the same time should really be a, a role model for us—a place where we go for ideas and for inspiration. And I think even in this time of COVID nineteen, artists—the things that artists are creating online and collaboratively online—is still amazing. Um, at the end of the book, Putnam interestingly does have a kind of manifesto, and he says artists should do something about this, or we should look at artists, we should look at artists. So it's almost at the end he realizes, or maybe he's realized all, all the way through, but then adds it at the end that artists in some way are the hope for the future and bringing people together. And if people are not, in his words, going to be bowling alone, it's up to artists to make that happen. But he doesn't think about in the rest of the book, how that's already happening and has been happening since community theaters started at the end of the 19th century.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels.
1: So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's
0: Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Oh, that's a really good that's really good. It's <laughs> <That's>
1: awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm very I'm very optimistic and, and hopeful about the power of musicals to bring people together.
0: Yeah, I I get our, our school. Unfortunately, we are the flagship liberal arts school of the state university of New York system, as we love to keep reminding people. And we cut a bunch of our arts programs a couple of years ago, all the, all the graphic design, all the studio arts. And so we are left with what I would call a rather anemic musical theater and, um, I don't know traditional theater I'm not sure what the other other thing is. I don't I don't want to say musical theater and then theater, but musical theater and then the non non-musical theater program. And it's shocking to me how often we talk about sports teams as being the the point of investment to help build community on campus and how rarely anybody thinks about musical theater or or the page to stage productions or any of the non-musical theater as being just as important and and having just and having the potential we instantly go to sports.
1: It, it's so it's so interesting what you're saying, Lee. And I think that I could have written an entire other book that was only about theater and sports at every at every venue. And there are so many similarities between doing theater and doing sports: teamwork, collaboration, working for something bigger than you, staying disciplined, and Rehearsing, practicing—I mean, even the even the the word practice—is the same, and it's hard to understand from the perspective of someone who's passionate about theater and works in the theater world all the time why people would care more about sports and how sports has been how all kinds of institutions have invested in sports in a way that has not happened with theater. It was interesting for me when I visited. number of high schools to see how many high schools, high school administrators were trying to make room for kids who wanted to continue being athletes and also continue being theater people. Because usually what happens is sometimes in middle school, sometimes in middle school, a kid typically needs to choose which way are they going to go. And I assumed that that binary would operate all the way up through the high schools that I visited. But I spoke to so many high school principals, vice principals, and teachers who were really trying to make a way for kids to do both and really understood that being an athlete fed artistry and being an artist fed athletics. And I was, I was really heartened to see that. But um, for sure, arts programs are cut constantly at at the expense of athletics being given more funding.
0: Yeah, I mean, I th- I think you kind of, throughout the book, I, I don't know if you researched this elsewhere, and I, I don't know that I'm necessarily particularly interested in it, but you did make a couple of different comments about how there, the market for musical theater looks different among teenagers. And so when we look at something like High School Musical, which seems like it would just be incredibly tacky to the modern sensibility. I mean, and Glee and stuff like that. Just like high school students eat this stuff up. And one of the things about the first High School Musical is that Zach Efron right has to choose between <laughs> the football and the musical theater, and he chooses the musical theater in this kind of very—it's uh, considered like you know very like anti. Uh, It's unique, right? Normally, because you wouldn't see that kind of thing happening, and and how many people celebrated that non traditional choice. And yet, that doesn't seem to be how it's borne out when we think about what this looks like. But then, of course, you go and you actually say, no, it actually works a bunch of different ways. It depends on where you are on the ground. Yeah.
1: And High School Musical, as a movie, um, a Disney movie, when it was shown in 2006, it was the most watched Disney movie on television ever. The first year it was shown, I think over 7 million people watched it. And then the second oh. night when they showed it, over 6 million people watched watched it. And that movie was the beginning of a change in the gender dynamics among kids, especially. And now those kids are becoming adults in musical theater. Um, one of the things that I quote in the book is this wonderful book by uh, Mickey Rapkin about Stage Door Manor, which is a musical theater Specialty camp, so for summer camp. So for kids who are especially interested in musicals, they go to the summer camp. And it actually is the place where Music Theater International has tested a number of their hour long shows, their Broadway Junior series shows at the summer camp. And he writes about how in 2008, so two years after High School Musical, they had to build an extra dorm at the summer camp for boys because so many more boys wanted to go to the camp and after high school musical there was glee and there was smash and there were more musicals on tv and this really expanded boys engagement with musicals as young people there's still of course associations of musical theater as a feminized feminine activity but there were many more boys who got involved after the early 2000s and high school musical which really changed everything and um It's also really interesting to me in high school musical, how they have, how they turn basketball into dance. And I really, I really love that scene in the movie.
0: Yeah. And, um, and a lot, right. I don't, I, I have a student who's writing her rhetorical criticism piece on the trailer for the film adaptation of, Oh crap. In the Heights. In the Heights. yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that, that she's been noticing in the research is how how the gender binary doesn't work the same for musical theater and performance in Latinx cultures that it does in sort of like white cultures, right? Because their dance works very differently and how there's sort of this interesting way in which now that I'm thinking about it, that the that the, maybe the high school musical has almost accidentally met up with something that was true all along for minoritized populations in, in the States and is now kind of maybe emerging onto the American culture scene, hopefully, you know, because obviously we want this to be a gender equal opportunity for everyone instead of being something that just only certain types of people do.
1: Yeah. And that only white people do because traditionally theater has been by for and about white people and in the Heights was an enormously important musical when it opened and it will be really interesting to see what happens when the film is released. Yeah, I'm excited.
0: Um, Well, this frame so we spent a lot of time on the framework of the book i think i think probably time to jump into like some case studies uh so i have some favorites i don't know do you have a favorite that you really love to talk about that you think gives people a real flavor for the book
1: um no let's let's hear what you have to talk about i have i have certain special love for every place i visited in every chapter so i'm happy to go with your preferences
0: well i really liked the discussion you had about into the woods and how complicated this is to put on for high schools, yet they keep doing it. And then also the chapter on the Jewish summer camp was so unexpected and very cool, especially since we're thinking about whiteness. So does either one of those. Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can, I can talk about either or both, I guess, starting with the girls, Jewish summer camp. Sure. Let's do that. Yeah, this also came as a surprise to me. I am Jewish and I did go, grow up going to summer camps. They were not girl summer camps and they were Jewish summer camps in some ways similar to the way these summer camps are. So these are not, they're not orthodox. They're not overtly religious in any way. They're summer camps that were created in the early 20th century, built in the early 20th century. The ones that I write about specifically are in Maine and they were built by women educators and often daughters of rabbis who were teachers in New York City and at the time of industrialization were trying like anyone who had any means to get out of the city um, because of the dangers of polio in the summer and other diseases that were spread and here we are in similar situations Um, so these women started these bought up land in Maine and started these summer camps in the teens and 20s and this was also part of a huge summer camp growth that happened with Christian camps and non-denominational camps and boys' camps. And there's incredibly interesting writing about the history of summer camps in the early early 20th century. Well, one of the things that surprised me about the research on these camps, and I knew I had nieces who went to summer camp and I had children of friends who went to summer camps and I knew that they were doing a lot of musicals, but I didn't understand how it worked or why it mattered. And the girls I knew always referred to these musicals as bunk shows. So in other words, shows that were done with the girls who lived in their bunk, who lived in their cabin. When I went to summer camp, and I think a lot of summer camps still operate this way, there would be auditions. So if you wanted to be in a show, you could, you would rehearse during the lunch hour and they would do one show over the season of the camp over eight weeks, or maybe two shows, or maybe a non-musical and a musical. But what I found out about these summer camps is that musicals, that theater happens, it's now musicals, but it started off just being plays every single week. So every Saturday night of the camp season for eight weeks, they do a show. And this I found absolutely astonishing. And then when I went back and started doing more archival research and more book research on the history of summer camps, I learned that theater was a part of the vision of su- of these summer camps from day one, from 1910 or 1912 or 1915 when they were created. And these bunk shows were a part of what the girls did week after week in addition to playing tennis and sailing and swimming. And for sure, these are camps for privileged Jewish girls who mostly have grown up in New York City or Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia or Boston, they they come from affluent families. So there's no, um, there's no other way to describe who this population is. They're quite homogeneous. And many of the girls came and come to summer camp with a lot of knowledge and experience of going to the theater already. These are girls who probably grow up going to Broadway. When they get to summer camp, they may or may not do theater at home the same way they may or may not swim or play tennis or play soccer or do arts and crafts. But when they get to camp, they are doing a show and every girl is required to participate in the musical. And they have this crazy system where they announce the show on a Saturday night. The girls audition, although it's very light um, audition light. So maybe they sing a little something or they do a little dance they indicate if they're willing to play boys and all of them mostly are willing to play boys because the men's parts are some of the best parts in the show and the counselor will pass the show and then they start rehearsing and they basically get the whole entire thing up on its feet in five days and then they perform it on Saturday night and then the next day it starts another another show and because it happens very intensely and very quickly and they rehearse during the week that they rehearse, they suspend all other activities. So whereas girls would normally be going to a different activity every hour, the only thing they do during the week that they're rehearsing for their bunk show is swimming twice a day because that's just a built-in part of camp that's non-negotiable. But other than that, they're in the barn or in the tent or out on the playground or wherever they are rehearsing for the show. And it's very intense. And because it happens in the already intense bubble of, Of summer camp, the girls bond in doing their show in a way that's just astonishing. And one of the things that I argue in this chapter that I observed when from talking to a lot of girls and visiting these summer camps is that the kind of loyalty that the camp wants to instill to keep the girls coming back year after year happens very significantly in this activity. This activity becomes a primary site for loyalty building, for development of a feminist perspective. And I might say it's kind of a light feminist perspective. So a liberal feminist girl power perspective. And the Jewishness is typically under the surface. They have services at most of these camps that are much more Humanitarian and liberal than necessarily religious, although they often sing Jewish prayers and Jewish songs. But this musical theater is so intense and bonding for them. And the songs that they sing in these shows become a part of the history of this group of girls as they move through summer camp. And many girls go to summer camp for six or seven years. And so over the course of that time, they perform in six or seven shows often with the same group of girls. And also over the course of the summer, they see another six or seven shows. So over their little lifetimes going to summer camp, they maybe have seen 40 some shows and performed in six shows themselves. And one of the things that I discuss in this chapter is how this is really how cultural capital is acquired in this little venue in rural Maine in the middle of nowhere on a lake. This is how wealthy white Jewish girls acquire more knowledge of the musical theater repertoire.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's a bunch of pop culture references that you could make, but in in sort of some of the mainstream TV, like The Marvelous Miss Maisel and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that feature women Jewish protagonists, you always see the Jewish summer camp bond show up. If not among the younger generation, then absolutely amongst the older generation as sort of something that you really need to hold on to that's very fundamental. So it, it's cool to see this kind of merging in with the musical theater piece. But yeah, I- those places, I
1: mean, the places that are featured in um, in Mrs. Maisel and other representations of camps that were for families in the Catskills, and that those were huge breeding grounds for all kinds of musical theater activity, and a lot of music, I'm thinking off the top of my head, Once Upon a Mattress, a wonderful, really fun musical by Mary Rogers was created at one of those camps in the summer. So a lot of activity happened in the summer that actually fed directly to Broadway, and many, many Broadway artists, including Stephen Sondheim, for example, went to boys Jewish summer camps. So the places that I'm writing about now I would say are much more tied into an amateur venue because I think now we have many more specialized summer camps and probably kids with serious musical theater interest go to some place like Stage Door Manor or French Woods. But in the 50s and 60s there were serious musical theater artists who were going to summer camps like the ones I write about.
0: And you make this, this point about the, the summer camps that I think will get us to the creativity angle that I wanted to talk about. And you talk, uh, let's see, Ron Page 241. So you say that musical theater encourages girls to try out different movement vocabularies. I love that phrase, movement vocabularies. Play across gender, take up physical space and command center stage, especially because most musicals require a direct address. Face front, an exuberant performance style with expansive physicality and broad expressiveness. And certainly you're not saying that this is like the cure for all women's ills. And obviously like lean in culture has been critiqued, but that's not exactly what you're getting at. So I I don't mean to don't anybody listening. This is not one of those like cut and paste feminist arguments, but it is something to consider that part of what they're doing at this particular these camps where they're learning musical theater is learning how to perform as others. And that's both in the in the sense of like learning to perform what it must be like to be entitled to space, but also learning what it's like to perform across gender and also learning what it's like to perform, you know, even in more the empathetic sense of like multiple characters and take on their perspectives. And I think this is an aspect, I think, especially something about the song. Right. Even as like sort of the musical version of like a really extended soliloquy that you have to inhabit those perspectives in ways you don't, if say you're just like reading what someone else wrote about something. And I don't think we appreciate that aspect of the performing arts enough.
1: Yeah, I think that's completely true. And I think that it's especially important at the age that a lot of these girls are at summer camps. And that I also noticed when I visited middle schools, one of the chapters of the book is about um, this event called the junior theater festival, that happens in Atlanta every year. And now there's also one in San Diego where 4,000 middle school, mostly middle school age kids and their directors and teachers gather to do, to present excerpts from Broadway junior shows for professional adjudicators and there's workshops and activities. And um, I think that especially the kind of the precarious age of middle school girls where they start either feeling ashamed of their bodies or less confident musical theater completely overturns any kind of shyness or holding back. And I think that there are a lot of girls who are shy in their normal lives and then get on stage and just open up. And it's true that at summer camps or other venues where girls are allowed to play boys' roles and allowed to play across gender, they are encouraged to take up more space. And I think what you're saying about a kind of empathy or walking in each other's shoes I think that happens, too. If you're going to understand a character and you're going to understand the character from their point of view, this is what all theater does. And I think musical theater, because it's accompanied with so much pleasure in the music and in the choreography, and it's so utterly embodied, it just amplifies that kind of empathy and pleasure and embodiment, uh, taking up space, as you talk about.
0: Well, yeah, and this is one, not, not that I want to turn this into like a critique of sports because obviously sports has value too. <laughs> but this, this is one of the places where the equivocation of sports and musical theater falls apart because it's like, oh, well, they both teach teamwork. Yeah, but teamwork's not teamwork's not my, my only payoff here, right? There's also this idea of perspective taking and performing as other and trying on different senses of self that is, I think, really important to encourage, especially in younger people, but in adults too. And, and there are just some some activities do this better than others. And I think that's one of the real downsides to defunding the arts. And I think this book, I mean, really gets that in a very unique and specific way.
1: Yeah, I think as you were talking, I was thinking that the most obvious difference between sports and musical theater is that in the end, sports is about competition and musical theater is not. Musical theater is about people coming together mm-hmm. to make something new to present it for an audience and to get someone on the same page, not on opposite pages. The one place where there's competition in musical theater is at the audition stage and it's very difficult and it can be very painful. But then after that, Uh, everything about coming together to make something as a community, as one to be presented to another community. And ideally if it all works well, the audience is completely in cahoots with the performers. The audience is, is absolutely drawn in. And of course, as we know, any of us who's gone to a play ever or participated in theater in any way, there is no show until the audience is there. The audience is what makes the performance. And so that is the direction that everything is going for people to put themselves in a position to work together to connect with their audience through a form that's very pleasurable and engaging and emotional and fun.
0: And speaking of the word form, good job. I knew you, I knew you, you got me right where I wanted to go. You make this really interesting comment. Um, uh, it's on page one hundred two, I don't know which chapter we're in uh, high school musicals about this issue of people. Sometimes I don't know about people, but there being a general sense that, Oh, well, this isn't, this isn't, the same kind of creativity because you're just having these people perform someone else's work and wouldn't they be better if they wrote and produced everything themselves? And you reference an ethnographic study by Kathleen Gallagher where they have sort sort of one group devise the plays on their own and then in the other group they do an Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, t- um, yeah, they do Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's Joseph and the Amazing Tentacolor Dreamcoat. And so you're looking at one original performance and one performance of someone else's work. And the researchers found that personal exploration also happens in the Joseph rehearsals. And you say, um, so this is you quoting the research. It didn't take us long to realize that this easy aesthetic social split was a seductive but inaccurate description of a more complex reality. And then you say, the social classroom edged towards the aesthetic, and the aesthetic classroom offered kids ways to engage that mattered to them. And you go on to, to talk about these different studies in which. Well, yes, there are differences. Performing someone else's stuff doesn't necessarily have any less creative creative value than performing stuff that you wrote yourself. And in some cases actually can offer even like just like different, right? S- same amount, but maybe just different kinds of opportunities. And I think that's an incredibly important contribution to the book because not only does it have the narrow focus of sort of rescuing the performance of these musicals from sort of the dustbin of culture, but also talking about them as a very productive force for shaping the creative minds and bodies of people that are engaging in these procedures. And yes, we're talking about kids here, but I see the same thing happen at community theaters and dinner theaters, right, where adults also get a chance for this performative aspect. So I'd love for you to talk maybe more about that or where you see that showing up in other parts of the book.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I was so happy when I found uh, Kathleen Gallagher's book and I read a number of ethnographies, about high schools and would look for the one page or the two pages that would be about theater. And her work is entirely about theater. And this idea that the most politically important, socially progressive theater, the theater that will transform young people, only can happen through the creation and telling of their own stories. It must be coming from their own community, it must be autobiographical, it must be devised, it cannot be an extant play or musical, they have to do it themselves. That's a pretty solid belief, I would say, uh, argument among activist theatre, progressive theatre, um, community-based theatre within academia. And I, before I started researching the book, I always had this feeling that kids who were doing musicals were still able to express their creativity and even if they were learning choreography they still were infusing choreography with their own embodiment their own way of moving around and also even when they're learning say how to tap dance they are still tap dancing themselves they're still activating that activity and so I was really interested to come across her work. And in my own travels and talking to young people, they absolutely entirely felt the work that they were doing to be creative and original to them. And one of the stories that I tell in the book, one of the things that I learned as I was traveling, and this also to my mind contradicted a lot of assumptions that we have about technology, this idea that technology um, would only diminish creativity What I found when I was interviewing a lot of students, and I saw uh, a number of productions of Into the Woods, that's the focus of that chapter, the high school musicals chapter, I would talk to kids about how they were creating their characters and trying to understand if their characters were created from the inside out. So kind of a Stanislavski method, objective-based, what does the character want? How does the character go about it? Character biographies. So Sort of typical ways of developing character or if they were trying to develop their characters from the outside in so let me put on this gesture or let me imitate someone else or let me uh, do the same kind of comic timing that this other actor does and how how are they trying to navigate their characters and what i found from so many kids that i talked to and even though my study is not scientific it's ethnographic i spoke to a number of so many students about this that i feel pretty safe making a generalization, that they have created in our time entirely new ways of making their characters that are a synthesis of this inside and outside. So I talked to one kid who I quote pretty extensively in the book. He played the baker in a production of Into the Woods in Michigan, and he said that he had watched 10 different productions of Into the Woods on YouTube and various professional productions and amateur productions. And he went through his role line by line to decide which line, which lyric, which breath, which gesture he would take from all of these different other performances that he observed and which he would take from his own life and his own Friendship with someone or relationship with his mother or something that he experienced. And he was doing this unbelievably complex, nuanced, and sophisticated performance analysis, which he would not have called performance analysis. He just said, I'm trying to create my character and I'm finding all these different ways to create my character. And also the inside and the outside using technology and making a role, making, embodying the baker and into the woods in a way that felt. And looked, from my perspective, entirely original to him. It was in his body. It was in his voice. It was fully infused with his energy and his creativity. And yet the way he came about it was unlike anything I've ever read or seen or known about in acting theory or performance theory. And I thought that was remarkable. And another way where the kids are way ahead of us in terms of how they're making art and making theater and how they're expressing their creativity.
0: Yeah, uh my hackles go up whenever someone says the sentence like technology's making everything fill in hyperbolic negative adjective <laughs> here. Because <laughs> it's not it's just not true. I mean, it makes some stuff crappy, but also, yeah, exactly like what you're talking about. I mean, it has it has really it's really remarkable what some people are able to do with it. So I again I mean I think that's one of the many strengths of this book is that it, it complicates a lot of basic fundamental assumptions that people have about all kinds of things, not only just musical theater, but like you said, play, creativity, learning, performance, leisure, and really gets at the fact that they are a feminism, right? That they are a knot of all of these contradictory clusters that, that you can only really appreciate in, in these specific situations. And so speaking of into the woods, and I, I want to wrap up at a certain point, cause I don't like to, I don't like to abuse the listeners with these insanely long interviews, but when you talk about Into the Woods, you organize the chapter where you talk about the, the high schoolers performing the Into the Woods play, musical. You, you, you have to go through each character. So just like you did with this, with this young man playing the baker, you do that for many of the characters and a variety of other sort of topoi from the play. And I just thought that was a really fascinating way to organize that because, again, it gives you a kind of access to depth that isn't available in some of the other chapters because obviously like how would you do that at the, at the Jewish girl summer camp, for example, it wouldn't really make a ton of sense. But, um, so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the into the woods case study before we wrap, or if there was another part of the book that you just really don't want to, don't want to leave without touching on first.
1: Um, yeah, well the into the woods chapter, um, I'm so glad that you commented on it. Obviously it was really, complicated to figure out how to write that chapter because I did want to map the show and give readers a sense of what actually happens in the musical. And I also wanted to capture these three places that I ended up focusing on, these three schools in the Midwest, even though I visited many other schools that I ended up not writing about. And I also wanted to focus on the incredible variety of the kinds of kids who do musical theater. I think we have the stereotype of the theater kid, And what I found when I traveled is that there was a a kid who was a newly minted American citizen. There was a girl that lived on a farm. There was a gay kid. There were many kids on the autism spectrum who were involved in some way or another. There were certain kids of color who could not participate because they were worried. Their families were, were undocumented and their families worried about them being in a visible place and i wanted to try to capture the range of kids who participate in musicals and the different things that they get out of it the different ways that they grow that they find friends that they find creativity that they connect with one another all through this musical that's actually a very very complicated show incredibly difficult musically Very challenging. All of the teachers who I talked to said they had no idea what they had gotten themselves into until they actually started rehearsing it because they think it's about fairy tales and it's going to be easy. But there's a ton of music and it's really hard. And yet, these schools, with pretty much no funding and no budget, through the ingenuity and energy of creative and dedicated teachers and the determination and creativity of the kids, they all got fantastic productions up on stage.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed this chapter quite a bit. It, um, Yeah, plus the discussion of just how the different schools navigate, because obviously certain more conservative schools probably would never pick the show, but even then you have varying degrees to which schools are willing to engage in some of the more thorny, the thorny or kind of more adult themes of the story. And so how the different schools modify to that and then how the students who are playing the characters, how that seeps into how they think about the role. And I mean, it's just, it's a very, I mean, it's a very easy read, but it's also remarkably complex for how, you know, like I said, it just feels kind of like a trip across the, the country for a summer, very long summer to watch all of these <laughs> yeah. musicals.
1: Um, You know, one thing I just wanted to say about, about it being at different places, I, one of the arguments of the book is that the Broadway canon the Broadway repertoire is a national repertoire it's a global Mm. repertoire really but it's a national Mm. repertoire and yet how each of these shows is performed is entirely infused by the local venue
0: Uh and
1: not only in terms of resources but in terms of race in terms of the food people eat and what time people go to rehearsal and how they get to rehearsal and where do they rehearse and where do they perform so it One of the arguments is that we think about the Broadway repertoire as being this Broadway, New York, bright lights and big city thing, but really how it's embodied, practiced, enjoyed and continued is through these very, very local practices, social practices.
0: Yeah, and I'll just, you have a lovely quote that finishes the book about this trip to Hawaii that you took that I'll just read kind of by way of closing, because I think it's a nice summary to what you just said, and also just because I love quoting good sentences. So this is the 314, very end of the book. You say, uh, seven years ago, I was also under the sway of negative stereotypes about local musical theater. Local, especially amateur musical theater was something serious theater people derided, belittled, or ridiculed. Although I spent much of my own childhood and youth performing in local music, sorry, local musicals, I'd forgotten why they mattered. And then you go on to say the community where you live. And then we talked about this in the beginning. Right now it looks different. And now whether you're visiting or going abroad, you suddenly notice complexity everywhere. And I think that's what good academic research does, especially in public culture. It takes something and not that everyone's going to leave this book like wanting to suddenly go see every musical theater, but you might. I mean, you might. They're but, not. <laughs> right. But I know. But, but when you go places, this right, exactly like you said, you notice a movie poster and it doesn't just get sort of stereotyped into your musical theater dum-dum bin of like local high school idiots or whatever. You I Suddenly like you can appreciate it without even having sit down to see the show. And I just think that's a very valuable contribution and it's like what everybody wants from a book. So seven years or not, it was seven years well spent.
1: <laughs> I, I enjoyed those seven years to be sure. Yeah.
0: Good. Well, um, so in closing, is there a book that you would like to recommend for an upcoming episode of the new books network? Like anything you're reading right now that's relatively new or an author that you want me to look into?
1: Yes. I would recommend a book by Megan Sandberg Zakian and oh,
0: there's a name there's a name
1: it's a hyphenated you know. last name so her last name is S-A-N-D-B-E-R-G hyphen Z A K I A N the book is called okay. there, there must be happy endings colon on a theater of optimism and honesty and Ooh. she is um an incredible theater director one of the chapters is about musicals but it's about why theater matters mm, and absolutely. a beautiful book and very hopeful and also very critical really accessible poetic lovely and just recently came out so i would recommend there must be happy endings on a theater of optimism and honesty by megan samberg zekian
0: all right i will look into that for the next interview i'll I'll name drop you so she actually reads my email i I feel bad sending anyone another email this time of year but you know it's got to be done. And once again, I just want to let everyone at home know that the book that we've been discussing that I'm sure you've already written down the title and ordered your copy but just in case you haven't, uh, it's called Beyond Broadway: The Pleasure and Promise of Musical Theater Across America by Stacey Wolf. That's Stacey, Stacy Wolf. That's Stacy S T A C Y Wolf W O L F. So no ease no ease in either one of them from Oxford University Press from 2020. And once again, I would like to remind everyone, as I always do at the end of these shows, to not only thank our authors, but also the university presses that publish this work for all of their goods and ills. Um, they It would be very hard to write academic books of this quality without them. And they are a huge supporter of the New Books Network, which as you may know, is entirely nonprofit. We do this all on a voluntary basis. So if you're not able to purchase a copy for yourself or that's not something that interests you, you can always consider asking your local library to purchase a copy, or better yet, buy the copy and then take it and donate the brand new copy to the library, whether it's a campus library or a public library, so that everyone can enjoy the work that Stacey has done about musical theater. And certainly when the show comes out, you can follow either one of us on Facebook or Instagram and let everyone know the interviews out so that more people can listen and get exposed to these wonderful ideas. Stacey, in terms of um, if people have questions or want to talk to you about anything, do you want them to contact me and I will see if you want to chat or do you want to just give them your contact information? I'm fine yeah. either way, just whatever whatever makes you I,
1: comfortable. I would love to hear from any listeners at swolf at princeton.edu.
0: Pretty easy, S Wolf, no E, at princeton.edu. All right, well, Stacey, this has been wonderful. The book was a delight to read and got me thinking about a lot of things. And I'm sure everyone at home feels the same way. So I will wish you happy stay at home, whatever it is that you're doing for that, <laughs> for that length of time. And take good care of yourself.
1: Thanks, Lee. You too. I appreciate it. Bye bye. Yep.
0: Bye bye.